Edinburgh Law School In Conversation is a podcast series where members of Edinburgh Law School sit down with notable visitors to learn more about their work and experiences. In February 2022, Ukraine requested an urgent decision from the International Court of Justice ordering Russia to halt all military action after its invasion that same month. The request was made on the basis of a dispute relating to the interpretation, application, and fulfillment of the 1948 Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide. Russia claimed that acts of genocide had occurred in the Luhansk and Donetsk regions of Ukraine, which was the basis for launching what it called a special military operation against many cities in Ukraine. Ukraine emphatically denied that such genocide had occurred and sought to establish that Russia had no lawful basis to take action in or against Ukraine for the purpose of preventing and punishing any purported genocide. In this episode, Edinburgh Law School's Professor Nihal Buddha is in conversation with Professor Harold Hongju Ko of Yale Law School about Professor Ko's experience as part of the international team of lawyers arguing on behalf of Ukraine in the suit filed against Russia at the International Court of Justice in The Hague in March 2022. So Harold, thank you very much for joining us. But I wanted to uh, begin by asking you a little bit about the role that you've recently played uh, in the case that the Ukraine has brought against Russia in the International Court of Justice. Is there any of you just tell us a little bit about the background to that case and uh, the main claims that the Ukraine was making? Um, yeah, it's, it's a good illustration of the adage that um, to pull a rabbit out of a hat, you first have to put the rabbit into the hat. By which I mean, um, in 2014, as you know, uh, Russia, with a variety of tactics, uh, occupied Crimea. And then also in uh, the eastern part of Ukraine, Donetsk and Luhansk, which is known as the Donbass, used uh, men in uniform, without uniform, with little green men, to do a kind of um, uh, terrorist takeover. And uh, what happened was uh, the Ukrainians decided that they wanted to contest this in a court of law. And they uh, asked uh, a group of us if we would bring a case for them. In, it's in fact part of a larger legal strategy. They brought cases at the WTO, at the Permanent um, Court of Arbitration, under the Law of the Sea Tribunal. Uh, they brought a number of international commercial arbitrations about expropriations in Crimea. But we developed a theory for a case that was filed at the International Court of Justice in 2017. And it was essentially about uh, race discrimination in Crimea under the Convention for the Elimination of All Forms of Race Discrimination, the CERD, and also uh, about the uh, shelling in the Donbass, and including that is the shootdown of the Malaysian airliner MH17, which had occurred in 2014. So uh, we brought that case, uh, the Russians defended, uh, we won provisional measures, and we won preliminary objections, and so we were moving to the merits. So uh, we were meeting with our um, Ukrainian clients in January of this year about our merits brief uh, memorial. And we said to them, uh, what, what would you do if, 
bait. And they said, uh, well, we, we hope he doesn't. And we said, we all hope he doesn't. Uh, and they said, do you have a legal theory that we could pursue? So we agreed that we would work on this. Uh, and we, as we were listening, we realized that what Putin was saying was he was accusing the um, Ukrainians of committing genocide in Crimea and the Donbass, which is the complete opposite of what uh, has been going on. Um, and both Russia and Ukraine are parties to the Genocide Convention of 1948. And a provision of the Genocide Convention says that if there's a dispute about the interpretation, application, and fulfillment of the convention between two states' parties, they can bring it to the International Court of Justice. So we found it very fitting that on Putin's lies, we could base jurisdiction. Uh, and then as it began, not only did Putin not back away from this argument, he doubled down on it. So there are two kinds of disputes. There's a factual dispute as to whether the government of Ukraine is committing uh, genocide. And then there's a legal dispute uh, over whether the um, Russians have a legal right under the Genocide Convention to, quote, prevent and punish the crime of genocide by using military force. Can, so can I stop you there? So yeah. there's, uh, I think there's a range of interesting legal questions that you've raised in your account so far. So maybe for the benefit of our listeners, uh, let's take a little uh, one step back to you know, International Law 101, something that we get to in maybe the fourth or fifth week of the International Law course in first year, um, which is the jurisdiction of the International Court of Justice. Yes. So you've mentioned that um, uh, there's been a long-standing legal strategy by the Ukrainian government to contest uh, the Russian uh, actions in eastern Ukraine on the basis of uh, the Racial Discrimination Convention, uh, and a similar approach has been taken uh, to the current use of force under the Genocide Convention. So uh, the basis of the jurisdiction of the court in both of those cases is a, a clause in a treaty. Could you just say a little bit about that, about uh, the foundation of that jurisdiction, and also uh, how did you have to interpret the clause in order to found jurisdiction? Um, it's Article 9. It's the compromissory clause. And it simply says that any dispute over the um, application, interpretation, or fulfillment of the treaty can be brought to the ICJ. So um, we thought uh, there's a dispute about interpretation. Is genocide occurring? There's a dispute about the legal authority being granted uh, to prevent and punish any genocide that might be occurring. And it's also a question about who's fulfilling their uh, obligations under the treaty. So to get uh, the main reason we want to bring the case is that we knew that provisional measures could be granted in as few as three days uh, or up to six weeks. In fact, in the previous case that we had brought, we, we got a ruling in six weeks. So we thought um, if we could bring this very quickly, uh, we could get an, a, a ruling very quickly. Uh, in fact, I was supposed to come and give a lecture here at Edinburgh <laughs> during that period. Um, what happened was that uh, we lost uh, contact with our clients uh, who were all escaping from Kiev, and uh, we didn't even know where they were. And then one night they called us and they said, we are in the Carpathian Mountains. We're in a mountain lodge. We, we've just driven here. 
uh, 26 hours, and um, in our bags are the hard drives of all of the computers of our department. And uh, what should we do? And we said, uh, we have a case we're ready to file. And so they looked at it and they said, please go ahead and file it. So we filed it, and then I called you and I said, I don't think I'm going to make the lecture. Um, and then I got on a train in, in London and went to The Hague. So, so two things that you mentioned, uh, again, on this question of how does this case get to the court in the first place? One is a dispute about the meaning of the treaty. Yes. Uh, and the other uh, thing that you've mentioned involves something called provisional measures. Yes. So let's, let's focus on the case that you, you uh, conducted recently in The Hague under the Genocide Convention. What's the dispute here? under the convention. What's what's the is it enough that one party says X, the other party says Y, and you have a dispute? Just can you just tell us a little bit about how you characterize the dispute at stake, giving rise to the jurisdiction of the court? Yeah, uh, it's actually a dispute about the rights of parties to a good faith interpretation of the treaty. So when you have a treaty like this, uh, everybody every state party has a right not to have an abusive interpretation. Um, you know, if uh, Ireland were told that um, the UK is invading it because gen they're committing genocide, uh, that would violate their rights under the treaty. And so um, that's where the dual issue is a question of fact, is somebody committing genocide? And then a question of law. What can you do to prevent it if they are? Now, you know, this is important because, among other things, they were um, uh, committing war crimes. And so it's quite ironic to pretend that you're preventing genocide by committing war crimes against uh, ordinary civilians. So um, also the fact that this had been so massively documented in the first weeks of the conflict um, on social media meant that the court knew all about it. So uh, we decided that we would ask for an order suspending all military operations by Russia in Ukraine, because if there's no basis for them to act under the Genocide Convention, they have no basis to conduct military operations. Uh, and in fact, in nine days, the court granted such an order uh, by a vote of 13 to 2. And it applies uh, by a vote of 13 to 2, not just to Russian military forces, but also to paramilitaries. So that means uh, members of the Donetsk and Luhansk, quote, People's Republic armies. So, so I think one of the interesting features about this case, of course, is that there's, uh, you're basing it on a treaty which does not give the court any direct right to adjudicate the question of aggression. Uh, or uh, directly contest uh, the legality of the Russian use of force, but rather indirectly. Uh, and if I understood you properly, you know, the argument is um, the Russians are invoking a casus belli, which amounts to an abuse of right. Exactly. Uh, and it, so in a sense, the, the Ukrainian position would have to be that um, this uh, uh, invocation of, of, of the claim of genocide is in itself a violation of the convention. Yeah. Right. So I think that's a very interesting uh, theory of the case. I think it's a, a one that uh, is certainly uh, novel in, insofar as I don't think I've ever heard it put in that way before the court before. 
Um, and then you said the provisional measures. But uh, now nobody's ever quite done something like that. Right, exactly. So it's, I think it's a very it's a very novel uh, situation as well as a very novel use of the of the, mo of the mo convention. Most most aggressors are um, prudent enough to not pretend that they're trying to prevent genocide when they're the ones that are committing war crimes. Right, and so in some respects, the, the, the it's the justification of the Russians that has gotten them into uh, some legal hot water here. Well, you know, they they uh, are a victim of their own chutzpah. That's <laughs> how I put it. Chutzpah <laughs> is a Korean phrase meaning <laughs> exceeding arrogance in this in this case. So this brings to the interesting question of the remedy, right, from the perspective of the court. Um, you might say that it would have been open to the court to simply say, well, stop saying those things, because that's the narrow question before us. Have you engaged? Are you, are you uh, unreasonably invoking a violation of the convention uh, or, or ascribing to Ukraine the violation of the convention, which you shouldn't be? It could have stopped there at some level. Uh, in your view, what was critical in persuading the court to go further and say, not only stop claiming that a genocide is ongoing, but stop doing the things that you say you're doing in response to a genocide? Uh, well, first of all, um, the, the Russians uh, took absolutely no steps to uh, modify their rhetoric, which is a little bit shocking when you think about it, um, since, as you say, they could conceivably have just stopped using the rhetoric of preventing geno genocide. The problem was that they didn't really have any rationale for the use of military force other than this. You know, they claimed in some sense that they're acting in collective self-defense of the Donetsk and Luhansk People's Republic, which they had just recognized. But I think they thought that was such a slim read that they didn't even rest it on that basis. Uh, they had almost no claim of individual self-defense. So uh, what has been interesting is to watch them persist in this preposterous uh, factual allegation. And uh, which means that, it, that if what's going on as a result of the violation of the convention is a claimed legal authority that doesn't exist, then the court can say this legal authority doesn't exist. And on that basis, they have no authority to send military. They, they were doing a, quote, special military operation and claiming to be the guardian of international law. So the court is entitled as the real guardian of international law to say uh, you have no authority to do that, and therefore you must stop the special military operation. Uh, secondly, and this was by a unanimous uh, provisional measure, they said you can't aggravate or extend the dispute, which means, among other things, that they can't use chemical weapons, they can't use biological weapons, they can't use hypersonic weapons, they can't use thermobaric weapons. Interestingly, even the Russian and the Chinese judge who dissented from the other parts of the provisional measures order joined that. So that, that, those parts of it are unanimous. And as you know, Nahal, from the Legrand case, um, uh, provisional measures are a binding order. Right. So th this brings me to the interesting question of, of provisional measures. So again, uh, for my people listening who, uh, who are not so familiar with some of the technicalities of uh, international law and the jurisprudence of the court, a provisional measure is a sort of interim measure that the court takes before it has had the opportunity to hear the full dispute. Uh, and the basic purpose of provisional measures uh, is to prevent or uh, to stop irreparable harm from taking place in the meantime. Um, I guess one of the questions here uh, for the layperson would have to be, 
Well, this is clearly a moral victory and a, a point of principle legal victory for Ukraine uh, to have the International Court of Justice declare relatively clearly that Russia needs to stop uh, its use of force uh, uh, on this basis. Um, what are the practical consequences of having a provisional measure in place at this point? So yeah, it's interesting. Uh, some of the me media in the states covered it by saying uh, a court can't enforce its own order. Uh, I found this uh, comical. No court anywhere in the world can enforce its own order. Uh, you know, a, a court in Edinburgh can't enforce its own order. The, the police have to go out. But when you have an international uh, ruling, uh, everybody can enforce the order. That, that's the point of it. And um, that was the main point. Is um, I, I cited in my argument, Marbury versus Madison. It's the province and duty of the judicial department to say what the law is. What the law says here is there's prima facie jurisdiction. They're violating it, and their uh, military actions have no legal basis. And on that basis, uh, the veneer of legality, which Putin is trying to put over his actions, is stripped away. And um, then every political body can incorporate that. It's been incorporated into the uh, EU's uh, statements, been incorporated into, uh, it will, will be, we hope, incorporated into a General Assembly resolution. It will be incorporated into national rulings. There's legislation before Congress in which there are citations to the provisional measures order, which is to say that it's uh, all hands on deck to enforce this order. And uh, that was exactly the point of the argument, which is the, um, it's scary to the court to think that they have to do everything. So what we had to argue to them is you can't do nothing, but you don't have to do everything, but you do have to move first. And the case is here, and you have no basis to not act because you have legal authority to act and there's jurisdiction. So um, take the first step. And, um, uh, you know, we, uh, this should be a situation in which Russia finds itself isolated because of the transparent illegality of all of its actions. And, you know, already Putin is now like Pinochet. He can't travel. His money can't move. His oligarchs can't move their money. His family can't travel. Um, yesterday, uh, a military officer openly questioned the strategy on, on television, which is interesting because the criticism of, of Putin's strategy is not coming from liberal Democrats in Russia, like Navalny, or not just that group. It's coming from um, you know, military actors who think that this is a disaster uh, for the repu military reputation of, of Russia. And um, that suggests cracks in the armor, which are pretty significant. So you, you mentioned something uh, in your last answer, which I just want to take you back to, because I think, in a way, this is a, an interesting point of intersection with some of your own scholarly work uh, and uh, the sort of the practical consequences that you mentioned of the, of the ICJ order. So you, you observed that um, once the court has, has moved itself to issue a ruling which is uh, legally uh, sound, or at least legally valid, because there's no other jurisdiction that can invalidate it except the court itself, uh, it creates, um, through that ruling, 
a norm of legal significance that has ramifications for a whole range of other actors that consider themselves, you know, by virtue of who they are or what they do, necessarily rule-abiding or having to take into account a decision of uh, the International Court of Justice. Um, so this, to me, uh, had uh, sort of a, a really strong echo with some of your work on international legal process. Uh, we don't live, the international legal order is not a centralized system. Uh, there is an apex court, but there's no apex legislator, there's no apex enforcer. But in a decentralized system of other legislatures and other enforcers, a decision of the apex court does matter. Uh, I'm just curious, do you see this as, uh, in some sense, uh, the most defensible version of, uh, of the efficacy of international law in a situation like this? This was the strategic design of the, of the case. It's um, applied transnational legal process. Uh, one, one way to put it is in a domestic system, you have simple enforcement. A, a person in Edinburgh commits a crime against another person in Edinburgh. The Edinburgh police investigate. The person captured and tried before an Edinburgh court and thrown into an Edinburgh jail. But as we all know, in the international arena, uh, people are in different countries and nationalities moving across borders and committing international violations as well as international crimes, which means that you may be able to get a norm declared by one court, but then there are many enforcers. And that um, uh, you don't expect the court's ruling to do everything. It, it's the thing that empowers. You know, so for example, if there's a, 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 a country that was concerned about whether it could uh, sanction uh, oligarchs' assets, um, that was lessened by uh, the ruling. You know, uh, Joe Biden met with, you know, Joe Biden didn't um, start calling Putin a war criminal until after this ruling came down. Uh, Biden met with Xi Jinping and told him, don't sell arms to Russia. And I'm reliably informed that he said, by the way, the International Court has said it's illegal, and if you do it, then you're illegal. And obviously, the Chinese have a separate interest in main, maintaining themselves on the side of law, um, and that this might be the thing that prevents them from crossing and supporting Putin. All of it is to make the legal argument work with the political and diplomatic position, which is to make Putin an uh, isolated outlaw in an interdependent world. So maybe just as, as we move uh, to wrap up this conversation, what's your uh, sense of the legal next steps, but also the practical next steps uh, uh, for this situation? Well, one thing I said in the argument, and in a very considered way, is um, Putin's short game is force. The world's long game is law. Um, we're in the center of medicine here, you know, it's a familiar story that if you're afflicted with cancer, you may die quickly. But if you can fight it off uh, and then get chemotherapy, you may be able to defeat it over the long term. Something similar is going on here, we hope, which is uh, the Ukrainian military is doing a brilliant job fighting off uh, the Russians. They've had extraordinary success. But nobody believes that the long-term outcome of this is going to be military victory one way or the other. 
there's going to have to be a negotiation. And in that negotiation, um, uh, the law being on the side of the Ukrainians rather than the Russians is a very helpful thing. So um, there are three spheres of activity now, uh, all of which uh, are interesting. One is uh, our case moves to the merits. Um, a lot of countries have indicated a desire to support us and intervene. Um, on the merits, uh, there'll be a claim of reparations. Um, if the court decides to grant that, they will assign a number. And that's a number um, that, at least as an initial matter, Putin's going to have to bargain his way out of um, to set things right. A second sphere of activity is, is criminal and civil accountability, which, which you know well. You know, Karim Khan at the ICC has said that uh, the reasonable basis to investigate, uh, some 42 countries have uh, supported that. Um, a number of countries are starting their own investigations and prosecutions, uh, including the Lithuanians. Um, the Ukrainians themselves got their first guilty plea yesterday, um, and they're doing a process of obviously trying to establish uh, who's giving the orders and what the standing orders are. And then there's a zone of civil accountability, which is a civilian uh, uh, reparations process. And then finally, there's the possibility of pursuing uh, aggression and uh, discussions about an aggression tribunal for Putin and the uh, uh, Russian leaders. Uh, this is being pioneered, um, among others, by Lithuania. Um, and so all of these different spheres of ad hoc activity are combining with action in the UN, in the European Court of Human Rights, in the Human Rights Council. Uh, it, it's all hands on deck. And uh, the hope is that um, as time goes on, Putin becomes more and more isolated and the country becomes more and more impoverished. And an uh, equally important message being sent is we're not enemies of the Russian people. Um, most of them don't even want to be a part of this. Uh, there were massive demonstrations uh, when the invasion began. And, um, you know, on Russian TV, a, a commentator got up and protested, which is amazing uh, insubordination. And increasing signs that Putin is more and more isolated. So um, uh, obviously it's a, a tough business. Um, as I speak yesterday, the uh, Mariupol seems to have now gone to the, uh, the Russians. The Russians are particularly focused on ports port cities outside of Crimea, like Mariupol and Odessa and uh, Kherson. Um, and, you know, the Ukrainian military is fighting uh, very valiant, uh, valiantly. But what's interesting, and this brings it back to our earlier case, um, Putin has already abandoned phase one of his military operation, which is a nationwide attack on Ukraine, and he's now back to focusing on Crimea and the Donbass. Well, it turns out we have a case about that too, <laughs> and that's at the merits. They've already found jurisdiction, um, and the same tactics are being used, which is uh, uh, terrorist activity, indiscriminate shelling, uh, racial discrimination, and the occupation of Crimea. So between these two cases, the ICJ has jurisdiction over this issue. And they've already shown that they're willing to exercise it. And so uh, it'll be a question of going back to them um, in, in the face of pretty flagrant um, uh, 
violation of their order. And you know, I'm, I'm an American. One of the first cases I cited was the Nicaragua case. Um, in that case, the court told the permanent five member of the UN to suspend certain military operations, namely mining the harbors of the port of Crinto. You know, the ICJ can't just be a court for small countries. Uh, if it's ready to rule against the United States, it should be ready to rule against Russia, especially when the violations are as flagrant as they are here. Great. Thank you very much, Aaron. Okay, good. Thank you.